Well, we do find ourselves uh, towards the end of Romans chapter 11. And so Romans chapter 11, we're going to start reading in verse 25, but we're going to really study starting in verse 28. So read along with me, Romans 11, verse 25. Now, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, that is from Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So as regard to the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on Thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, many singular events are said to have radically altered the course of human history, like the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand on June 28, 1914. Within a few weeks of that event, all of the major European powers were squaring off in battle that would lead eventually to World War I. Nine million people would die, and most to draw a direct connection between the end of World War I and the beginning of World War II. And all of that really could be traced back to an assassination of one archduke. Well, another single event that changed the course of history happened on October 27, 1962, and this time this event preserved life. After the U.S. signaled a USSR nuclear submarine in international waters, the submarine crew had no way of knowing if the nations were at war. You see, they were so deep that they hadn't heard from Moscow in many days. And of the three-man team responsible for deciding to launch a nuclear warhead, only one, Executive Officer Vasily Arkhipov, was against the launch. And he's held steadfast. And many think that this one man's decision kept the world from nuclear war on October 27, 1962. Well, another event that shaped biblical history was a sea battle in the ancient Mediterranean in 480 B.C., around the time that Malachi was prophesying in Israel. The combined fleets of the Greek city-states defeated the Persian invaders, and that led to the ascendance of Greece, to Alexander the Great conquering Israel, and the common use of Greek language and culture both would be prevalent during the time of Jesus when he walked on this earth. The New Testament would eventually be written in what? In Greek. And it's the common Greek culture in human terms that helped spread the gospel message so quickly outside of Jerusalem. See, a sea battle in 480 B.C. set God's plan for the spread of Christianity in motion hundreds of years before it happened. You see, there are simply too many little events that changed history to believe in luck or coincidence or mere chance. You see, it's much easier to believe in a sovereign God. Our catechism says, why do we call God sovereign? And answers, because he is king over all. That's essentially what sovereign means, right? He is king over all with limitless power, limitless authority to reign over his creation. God is also able to do whatever he desires according to his holy and perfect will. Sea battles, a Russian commander's hesitancy, a Serb's zeal to kill the Archduke. These are not individual accidental events. These are events in the screenplay of life written and directed by God. He reminds us in Isaiah 46, verse 9 and 10, For I am God, 
and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. So this morning, we pick up on God, reminding us that he has made some very specific promises to Israel, promises of salvation, of forgiveness of sins, of of mass conversions of Jews to follow Christ. And when you look today and you see very few Jews following Christ, and churches certainly do not dot the landscape of Israel, some wonder if we don't need to give God an assist and reinterpret his promises. But as we look at the text, I want you to see the credibility of God's sovereignty needs no assist from us. In fact, God always works through the good and the bad to accomplish his perfect plans. So as we consider our sovereign God in the big picture of human history, I want us to ask three questions of our sovereign God. Three questions to ask of a sovereign God. You see, these questions are the types of questions that we need to wrestle through. They're the questions that my 8 to 12-year-old kids tend to ask as they start to think seriously about their faith for the first time. They're the questions that come up in serious conversations about God with your friends or family or coworkers. They're the questions that the Bible itself brings up as you read Holy Scriptures. That sometimes, these, these questions sometimes tend to make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. Like, how and why is there sin if God is sovereign? Like, is God involved in hardening people's hearts? Like, does God actually use sin to further his plans? So lean into questions like this with me this morning and be ready to give good biblical answers. So our first question to ask of a sovereign God, number one, how did God's enemies bring about God's gospel? How did God's enemies bring about God's gospel? Now, I've read a few good historical accounts of wars, and like many of you, after I read these books, I think, man, that would be cool if I was a commander of that army, right? Maybe not, but that's what I think. And if there's one thing I've noticed, a good commander doesn't just slug with all of his might at the most fortified point, right? A good commander pokes and prods around the lines, hoping to draw the enemy into some bad defensive position. The idea is to get the enemy to contribute to his own demise. Uh, Like Joshua in the battle of Ai, who who, who he feigned defeat and ran away from the city only to draw the people of Ai out of the city and then set an ambush to attack them when their defenses were indefensible. This is really what you do when you play chess. I know some of you like to play chess, and that's essentially the, the goal of chess, is to figure out how to surrender the pieces that you need to surrender to get your opponents in vulnerable positions. And so you could say, God is the ultimate chess player. He's the ultimate commander of angel armies. And so it makes sense that we see God use the moves of his enemies to accomplish his perfect plans. Go to verse 28, Romans 11. So we're going to look at the first half of this verse. We need to realize who the they are, who the you are, so I'll kind of supply that for you, but just listen. As regards the gospel, they, Jews, are enemies of God for your Gentiles' sake. So let's notice a few things about this verse first. The word gospel is used. So as regards to the gospel, this is the context which he's talking about. The gospel means good news. The gospel really is God's good news of salvation, of forgiveness of sins, because our debt has been paid for on Christ. That's what we just sung about in 2 Corinthians 5.21. And so, so good news recognizes the fact that we're all enemies of God by nature. We all need God to bring us back to him. See, there is no good news without realizing you're an enemy. 
So it implies, it assumes that we're all enemies with God. And so as we think about the power of the gospel in our mostly Gentile church that we have here, Paul wants you to realize something. With regards to the gospel, the Jews are enemies of God for your sake. See, the fact that most Jews are enemies of God has resulted in the spread of the gospel to all nations. Now, the emphasis in the phrase enemies of God isn't so much that Israel has hardened her heart against God or is seen herself or positioned herself as an enemy of God, but really the emphasis here is that God sees fit for the time being to harden Israel's heart. He, God, made them his enemies. Just as, as he says in the future, later on in the same verse, beloved, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. That's not saying that the, is, the Jews are beloving, beloveding God, but it is God beloveding them. And in both cases, God sovereignly is acting on Israel, currently to harden or currently to make the Jews his enemies and in the future to, to love them. This isn't the first time in these chapters that Paul has reminded us that God hardens whomever he wills for his own purposes. Look back at verse 7 of chapter 11. Romans 11, verse 7. Seeing that Israel is, uh, you know, disobedient, they are continuing to reject God. Verse 7, Paul asks the question, what then? And he answers, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. Salvation. They failed to obtain salvation. Not, you know, they, they were trying to do works, they're trying to do things to make God pleased, and it didn't work. But then he says, Was it though Israel though that, that was failing? In some sense, yes, but in some sense, no. He continues. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So, so the elect, the, the, those who God had chosen, they were saved. But, but the rest of Israel, they were hardened. And who does this hardening? As it is written, verse 8, God is the one who gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And so, and so back in verse 28 of Romans 11, we see God is hardening of the Jews here. As a result, or in regards to the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies of God, or they are God's enemies for your sake. So God acts against Israel to achieve his gospel plans for all of us, for the nations. And we see that enmity with God in this case brings about gospel fruit. And Jesus shows us the exact same thing, that this was God's plan. So, so turn back with me to Matthew 21. Go back to Matthew 21. And I want you to see this because this is an important way, uh, way that you can answer this question about how can God use his enemies or how can even God make people his enemies in order to bring about the gospel? It's a hard question. It's a troubling question. So this is the final week before the crucifixion of Jesus in Matthew 21. And this is really on the first couple of days after he's entered in Jerusalem. The, the masses proclaimed glory and praise to him as Messiah. He enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and the religious leaders accuse him of accepting the praise that should only be given to God. And so just listen to, to one of his exchanges with them. Matthew 21, verse 15. He says, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they, the chief priests, they, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have prepared praise. The Jewish leaders hated this, and, and, and it's only going to get more and more hostile to Jesus as the week goes on. And so Jesus actually tells a parable to kind of stir up their hostility to let them know that their hostility actually is part of God's plan all along. Go to Matthew 21, verse 33. He's in the temple. He's talking to the religious leader. Well, to a lot of people, but the religious leaders are clearly right there. 
Listen to this parable. Here another parable, Jesus says. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country, what any rich landowner would do. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to go get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than at first, thinking that, you know, maybe, maybe more people will be able to get these grapes and this harvest from this, these tenants. And they did the same to them. Finally, verse 37, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? Jesus asked the crowds this, this natural question. And so they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyards to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their season. And so then Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus started to turn the screws on the religious leaders. Not only is your rejection of me, God's son, ridiculous on its face, it's actually been planned all along, right? This is, haven't you read? The stone that the builders rejected, it's now the cornerstone. God planned to make Jesus the, the cornerstone of his gospel plan, of his new temple, to build into a holy people, a family of God. Jesus really is the cornerstone of the church. But part of what makes Jesus the cornerstone of the church is his rejection by the Jews. Look at verse 43, he continues. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Look, Jesus is either the source of our strength, the source of our hope, of our joy in all of life, or he is judge. He is a stone that crushes those who reject him as Lord and Savior. Beloved, that's an offensive message to the world. That if you do not believe in Jesus, if you do not come to Jesus, if you do not embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will be crushed by Jesus. And it's especially offensive to the Jews. Verse 45. When the tree priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them, you think? And although they were seeking to arrest him, they, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Well, their restraint would only last a few more days because God's plan all along was to bring the gospel to the world in part through the rejection of the Jews. In fact, how was Jesus crucified? He was delivered up to die for blasphemy by the Jews against the protestations of Pilate. And so the wicked, sinful act of rejecting Jesus as Messiah, of unjustly framing him to be crucified, that most horrible of acts brought on by God's Jewish enemies is exactly what God planned. The cross would not have happened without Christ's enemies doing what they were inclined to do. And yet, what do you notice with all the Old Testament quotations? That's what God wanted them to do. God hardens hearts to accomplish his gospel goals. To see the fruit of this, go, go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Paul isn't the only one to pick on, on this theme that Israel being an enemy of God really brings about the gospel message and, and the spread of the gospel. Peter 2 makes this a major part of 1 Peter 2. And he takes it a step farther, further and he says, part of the power of the gospel 
was to give Gentiles the blessings that used to be only reserved for the Jews. So Peter quotes the same psalm to show that in order for Christ to be the cornerstone of the church, the Jews had to reject him. 1 Peter 2, verse 7, read with me. For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this stone is a stone of stumbling and a, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. They, disobedient Israel, stumbles over Christ effectively because they are enemies of God because they were destined to do us. But the church, now predominantly Gentile, including people from all nations, has been granted some of the same privileges that once belonged to Israel. Listen to Peter, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. Talk about nation language, right? Ethnic language. A people, uh, sorry, a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Listen, this was how Israel used to be described and how the church is given these titles regardless of our ethnicity or our background or our heritage not that the church has replaced Israel in God's program, but we certainly have been grafted in to God's blessings here. So turn back to Romans chapter 11. So Peter, James, sorry, Peter, Jesus, and Paul, they, they all agree. The blessings that come to our church today came because God hardened the hearts of Israel. In fact, still hardens the hearts of most of Israel because most Jews reject their Messiah. Verse 28. As regards the gospel, they Jews are enemies of God for your sake. Don't let the glorious joy, the, the life-affirming blessings of God's sovereign plan become kind of ho-hum, Take it or leave it. The undeserved kindness of God is not a light matter. You were not a people, but, but now you are God's family. We come from all over the world in this room, and we worship the same God. Because he is gracious to us. He helped us see our need for a savior and that the only savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. You fit perfectly into God's sovereign plan. The one who brings the chill of winter to our land is the same one who chills the hearts of his enemies. All to accomplish his gospel goals and that you know him as Father should motivate you to draw ever closer to him, to trust him with all that you are, to devote your life to serving and glorifying him. Do people see a devoted servant of Christ when they look at your life? Well, there's a second question to ask a sovereign God. Number two, why is God's reputation at stake in Israel's future. Why is God's reputation at stake in Israel's future? Perhaps the majority of marital issues come up because wives tell their husbands to do something and they say, sure, and it simply never gets done. Perhaps we never intended to do it in the first place. Perhaps we weren't actually listening and we just answered. Perhaps we just forgot. Or perhaps we realize that we can't actually do what we said we were going to do because we're incapable. Whatever the reason, we certainly must aim to be men of our word. And so consider God making promises to Israel like a husband does to his wife. If God simply doesn't follow through on his promises, then his reputation is at stake. If God never intended to do what he promised, can we even trust God now? 
If God just said something without paying attention to what was actually going on, can he actually be a perfect king overall? If God simply forgot that he made this promise, could he be the all-knowing God of the universe? And if God realized later that his promises made to Israel have to be altered to, to fit really what's actually going on, can you trust his plans for any future? God's reputation then is at stake in Israel's future because God has made some very specific promises to Israel. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 continues. But as regards election, they, Israel, are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Again, note a few words here. The word election is there. That is, could also be translated choosing, but as a result of God's choosing, as regards to God's choice, specifically God choosing to bless Israel. Paul writes this after the establishment of the church, and so if, if the church is designed to fulfill all of God's prophecies to Israel, or if Jesus himself is the fulfillment of all God's prophecies to Israel, then now would be the perfect time to let us know, but he doesn't say that. God, the Holy Spirit, tells us that Israel is still chosen or elect and beloved for the sake of their forefathers. He says that at the end, right? For the sake of their forefathers. In other words, for the sake of the promises made to the forefathers in the Old Testament. And in case you think we should still reinterpret these promises to no longer apply to Israel, look what he says in verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God, these are irrevocable. God's gifts, God's promises, and God's choosing of Israel are irrevocable. That means they cannot be changed. So what promises have yet to be fulfilled? What else is left for Israel since Christ, the promised Messiah, fulfilled so much prophecy? Turn to Ezekiel 37. Turn to Ezekiel 37. This perhaps is one of the clearest promises given to Israel that God has planned for a future for Israel. It's also a passage that every middle school boy loves. Sadly, many of the middle school boys aren't in here today because they're practicing for the Christmas play, something that happens before Thanksgiving sometimes, Matt. So this is a great picture, and you know maybe we'll have to talk about it again sometime when the middle school boys are here. But it's a picture of a bunch of bones, dry bones of the long dead, and kind of what it looks like for these bones to come back to life. It's kind of like the, the one place zombies are mentioned in, in the Bible. So let's look at what happens here. Ezekiel 37, verse 1. The hand of Yahweh was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of Yahweh and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry, as opposed to wet bones, right? They were, they were long, dead, totally dead, dead people. We're not talking about recently dead people. This is dead, dead, okay? So he continues, verse three, right? And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I love Ezekiel's answer. I mean, this is probably what we should all say if God were to ask us a question. Ezekiel say, answered, oh, Lord Yahweh, you know. I mean, what am I supposed to say? Like, can this happen? God, you know. I, I'm not gonna say yes or no here. He continues, verse four. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I'll lay sinews upon you and I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am Yahweh. And so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. 
What a picture, like these bones rattling, flying, you know, from one place to another, turning into a skeleton first, and then the muscles and the sinews kind of growing organically on. I mean, this is an incredible sight that Ezekiel has been given to see here. And the skin covers the, the outside, but they're still dead. There's no breath. Verse 9, and then he, God, said to me, prophesy to the breath Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. Breath is interesting, has a double meaning in Hebrew. It can mean breathing, but it can also mean, mean spirit. It can mean either our spirits or the Holy Spirit. It's part of what makes us alive. Verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet in exceedingly great army. And then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Massive conversions to Christ. Massive amounts of people given new life. We understand that this means new spiritual life because there's a, a more that goes on to this as we, as we continue. He's talking about a massive waking up of Israel from their death, their enemy status, to friend status, to family status. And all this will happen when Israel thinks there's no hope. Verse 11 continues, Behold, they say, while our bones are dried up and our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you, raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I think up from the grave speaks of God's plan to reverse spiritual death here that made Israel enemies of God. This new life comes from the power of the Holy Spirit, the breath that is going to be breathed out. So Ezekiel continues to elaborate. Verse 14, we see the Spirit mentioned here. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. So how are they to live? It's because the Holy Spirit does a new work in their lives. And I will place you in your own land then you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken and I will do it, declares Yahweh. And here God connects Israel's future salvation, their future new birth, with his promise to bring them back into the land. See that? Six times in this chapter, God promises not just to bring spiritual new birth, but to bring Israel to the land. Listen to Ezekiel continues in verse 21. Jump down to verse 21. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will make the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. Perhaps this happened one of the several times Israel has returned to the land in the past, as people say. Maybe it was in 445 B.C. when Nehemiah returned to the land. It's possible. Maybe it was in 1948 with the establishment of modern Israel. It's possible too, but, but God tells us something more about that day when Israel returns to her land. Verse 22, one king will reign, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations, and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. Uh, no longer kind of uh, Samaria and, and Israel, no longer Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel that has never really returned to union. One king will unite all of Israel again. And then Ezekiel continues to speak of this obvious spiritual renewal that will happen when the one king will reign over Israel. What does he say? Verse 23. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backsliding in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Further, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Not literal David, he's been dead, but, but a Davidic king, King Jesus, the son of David, will come and reign. And when Messiah comes to reign, his rule, Ezekiel says, will, will never end. Verse 25, 
They shall dwell in the land that I give to your servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and your children and their children's children shall dwell in the land forever. And David, my servant, shall be prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. This Davidic king will literally be God with us. Emmanuel. Verse 27, my dwelling place, God says, shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Does this sound like events that have happened? I don't think so. God does not misspeak. He doesn't utter empty promises. And what God says comes to pass. So turn back to Romans 11. Every time, as we go back to Romans 11 here, I want you to think of a, of a connection, an illustration. Every time we put our money in a bank account, we are relatively certain that we're going to get our money back. We have a high degree of trust in the banking system. You could even say we depend on the banking system to function in order to eat, work, and keep a roof over our heads. All depends on the banking system. So why is it that we have a, such a hard time depending on God, trusting on God for everything? Romans eleven twenty nine 29 tells us very clearly. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He wants us to see God is always trustworthy and always true. Hundreds of prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus at his first coming, and hundreds more remain. Some are personal, like his promise to hold us fast to the end to never leave nor forsake his own children. Others are universal, like his promise to return. And so others have to do with Israel, as we just read. But do you depend on him like you do the banking system? Do you pray every day? Do you read his word? Do you aim to follow his commands with your life? Or are you simply mildly interested in God only when he fits conveniently into your life? He is dependable. So do you depend on him? As we finish up our passage, let's ask a third question of a sovereign God. Question number three. Is sin always necessary for mercy? Is sin always necessary for mercy? You could also ask, could God have shown us mercy if we had not sinned? Could we even understand mercy if there were no sin? Well, to answer that, we need to figure out what is mercy. Simply, mercy is the withholding of God's wrath for sin. It's not getting what we deserve from God. So to answer our third question, the simple answer is yes. Is sin always necessary for mercy? Absolutely. Sin is always necessary for mercy to be shown because mercy cannot be shown if there is no sin. To, to make this point very clear to us, go back to Romans 9. After showing us repeatedly that God chooses whoever he wants to choose and he hardens whoever he wants to harden, he has mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy, we finally get to the purpose of God's sovereign choice in the lives of men and women. Verse 22. So, so why does all this happen, Paul asks? Romans 9, 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which is prepared beforehand? glory. 
So God allows sin. God hardens hearts for his glory. Sin is present so we could know the full complement of God's attributes. His wrath, for example, and his mercy. So others ask related questions then. Why did God create Lucifer, you know, the, the archangel Lucifer, knowing that he was going to become Satan? Why did God allow Adam and Eve to sin? Well, some answer it incorrectly, and they say, well, God didn't allow them to sin, but God gave them free will, and he gave Lucifer and Adam and Eve free will because he didn't want robots to worship him, and they chose to sin. It's not exactly right. He certainly allowed them to sin, and certainly they did choose to sin. Romans 9 through 11 tells us why. Romans 9 verse 23, right? So that he could make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Sin is necessary to understand who God is and how God saves. Go back to verse 11, chapter 11. And we see this cycle of disobedience and a life of sin contrasted with God's mercy in verses 30 through 32. They essentially summarize, summarize how God has worked in the world. There are four scenes in these three verses. Gentile disobedience, Jewish disobedience, Gentile mercy, and Jewish mercy. Gentile disobedience in times past, Jewish disobedience today, Gentile mercy today, and Jewish mercy in the future. Look at verse 30. For just as you, Gentiles, were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their, Jews, disobedience. He wants to repeat what we learned often in chapter 11. Very simply, the Gentiles didn't do anything to make God love them. God didn't look down on the Gentiles or the nations of the world. Remember, Gentiles simply means nations, okay? Nations other than Jews, okay? God didn't look down on all the nations of the world and said, you know what, I really like all those guys. Their culture, their laws, man, they're starting to get better and better. They're getting closer to, to what I like. Their, their kings and judges are, are particularly good, and they're doing a great job. And so, you know what, because they're doing so good, I'm going to have mercy on them. That's not the way he speaks. The whole point is that all the nations have been in a perpetual state of disobedience, for as long as anyone can remember. And still, God saw fit to show mercy, to withhold his just punishment on pagan peoples. And God's mercy only came to us because of the disobedience of the Jews, he also tells us, right? All the nations have received this grace because of what the Jews did in rejecting their Messiah and crucifying him. Verse 30, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now you've received mercy because of the Jews' disobedience. Now he goes and turns to the future for the Jews, verse 31, so they too have now been disobedient, speaking of the Jews, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. The idea is very straightforward here. Part of what Paul expects is that because of how God has worked in the nation, some Jews will be jealous and long for a restored relationship with him. Chapter 11, verse 13, makes this point clear. Paul says, I magnify my ministry among the Gentiles, verse 14, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. And so that's what he's doing in verse 31 too. He says, so they, the Jews, have now been disobedient. They've, they've hardened their hearts, and God has hardened their hearts in order that by the mercy shown to you Gentiles, the church, they also may now receive mercy. They could be jealous and say, you know what? I want what the nations have, a right relationship with the God that, that, that we say we worship. And so some Jews will come to Christ now. But he also speaks in verse 32 of a future greater salvation. Verse 32. For God has consigned all Jews and Gentiles to disobedience that he may have mercy on all 
that is all types of people, Jews and Gentiles. He's not saying that all will be saved in the end. This is not a statement of universal, universal salvation. He's saying disobedience and mercy will be known by all types of people all over the world, among all people groups, all Gentiles, and pointedly again, among all Jews. When Jesus returns and brings what those dry bones together, when he reigns over the people and they're given new life. And just like the Gentiles, God will show mercy, not because the Jews are inherently more lovely, but simply because he's merciful with us sinners. I still remember the first and only time I was pulled over for speeding. I was going 33 miles per hour in a 25 zone about 11.30 at night in a small town in the middle of Idaho on Christmas Eve. I was about 17, 18 years old. The officer looked in and saw my family asleep and you know, asked for my license registration. And he asked, you know how fast you're going? I said, I think I was about 32 or 33. He said, yes, you need to slow down when you're going through these small towns. You never know what can happen. And he let me off with a warning. I was very grateful. I had technically been disobedient. I could have been punished. But this man had mercy on me, right? He didn't give me what I technically deserved. Occasionally, when our kids deserve punishment, we will tell them, you know what? We're going to have mercy on you this time. We're not going to follow through on the punishment. And guess what they plead for next time they're in trouble? Mercy, right? Mercy is always sweet. It's always desirable. I mean, I certainly wanted that police officer to give me mercy. And do you know what makes mercy sweeter? It's when you realize what you really deserve when you start to understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of your own heart, mercy becomes that much greater. See, God designed you to be enamored with his staggering majesty, to be emotionally drawn to his undeserved love. He designed mercy and and grace and forgiveness and, and even our own sin to totally convince us that he alone is worthy of all our praise. And when we are convinced that he is worthy, we can't help but be serious about finding our greatest delight in knowing him. So be serious with me for a few more minutes as we turn to Jeremiah 31 in closing. Go to Jeremiah 31, verse 35. It's a passage that speaks to the greatness of God and his sure promises that he'll make to Israel and to us. As you're turning there, listen to what John Piper says. John Piper warns us, inside and outside the church, we are drowning in a sea of triviality, pettiness, banality, silliness. TV is trivial. Podcasts are trivial. Conversation is trivial. Education is trivial. Christian books are trivial. Worship styles are trivial. It is inevitable that the human heart, which was made to be staggered with terrifying, joyous dread and peace by an infinitely untouchable, embracing God, it is inevitable that such a heart, drowning in the all-pervasive, blurry boredom and banal entertainment, will reach out for whatever buzz we think life will give us next. And the most enduring cure, then, is to remove our most pitiful addictions. It's to be staggered by the infinite sovereign God who shows mercy to us and is faithful to his promises. God knows that we need to be staggered by him, and so we read this, Jeremiah 31, verse 35. After he promises to give us new hearts and he will write his laws on our hearts and the Holy Spirit will renew us, he says this, Jeremiah 31, verse 35. Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night? 
Who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar? Yahweh of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares Yahweh, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Can you control the ocean? Can you move the stars and keep galaxies in their place where they need to be? Then trust God to be faithful and true. He continues, verse 37. Thus says Yahweh, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares Yahweh. It's kind of like the end of Job. We can't even get to Mars, let alone the nearest star. So who are we to not trust worship and delight in our faithful God. Let's not be so enamored with the trivial this holiday season. And let's commit to worshiping Christ in our homes with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we got to study your word and to be reminded of your profound majesty, your splendor of holiness. Thank you that we were able to see the glorious reality that you are a sovereign, powerful, omnipotent God who uses even terrible things to accomplish your good things. Lord, what a profound reality that in some way you are sovereign over sin and yet not the author of sin. In some way, you have seen fit to harden hearts, and yet still, we are inclined to do whatever we are inclined to do if that be sin. So Lord, I pray that you would help us not to try to remedy every single contradiction or, or challenge that we might have, but that we would stand humbled before a holy, omnipotent, and powerful God, and that we would just confess Lord, you know. Lord, you know how you will use this sin. You know how you will use my weakness. You know how you will use this tragic situation to turn for good. You know how you will use our blessings in life, not to be a snare to us, to just be enamored with these trivial things that we get, but you will use these blessings as a motivation for us to give thanks and praise and glory to your name. Lord, we trust that you can work in our hearts, and we ask that you would. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.